Now hear the word of God from 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here's my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be re relieved while you are hard-pressed, but there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, as it is written. The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people, for I know that your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling that since last year, you and Asia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be, for if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge your harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. 
And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. It's good to see all of you this morning. Hope you're having a wonderful day. Uh, was, who, who here was at the chili cook-off yesterday? Right? Wasn't that delicious? That was some good chili. Um, just out of curiosity, who won? I don't even know. Who won the best chili? It wasn't you? <laughs> Do we even know who won the best chili? I'm curious. Oh, the three categories. Who won um, best fan choice? Chicken Bacon Ranch. Very nice. And who won the uh, pa- Pastor's Choice? Oh, okay. And then who won the most unique? Belinda. Belinda. Guys, you guys missed out some good chili. I'm just saying. I just wanted to rub it in on you a little bit. Just, I'm just kidding. Now, we had an amazing time at the chili cook-off. It was fun. The chili was excellent. It was such a wonderful time. But we, most importantly... We were able to raise funds for our youth ministry. Now, I'm sure you haven't done all the totals yet, but did we raise enough for somebody to get a spray tan? <laughs> Is the answer yes. So what is that happening? How many? <laughs> so our youth ministry is getting a spray tan this week, guys. So uh, I don't know how pumped you are, but I'm pretty excited about it. He's gonna look good. Now, if you weren't able to attend yesterday, you're still able to donate to the youth. They'll still take more donations. It all goes to helping the youth uh, attend their summer trip. So that's just an aside, but we had such a great time. I love the fact that we can raise money for our youth whilst just having a blast doing it. What a privilege it is. Every time we just get together as a church body, as a community, it's just fun. It's joyous, and for me, it's a picture more of the kingdom of heaven. And so I thank you guys so much for making it such a wonderful event. Caleb, I know, and the youth group really thanks you all for it. We're continuing in our series through the book of 2 Corinthians. It's the second epistle, the second letter sent to the Corinthian church. And here we are in the middle of this book, and there comes this random aside, this, this random two-chapter focus on stewardship. And it kind of sort of comes out of nowhere, but you got to remember that Paul isn't writing a treatise. He's not writing a paper. He's writing a letter. And this side, it doesn't work well for those of us who don't know. If you're new here, if this is your first time, yeah, you're talking about giving. And this is your favorite topic to hear about. And you're like, oh, man, I bet you that church always only talks about giving. No, no, this is what's in the text. At Waypoint Church, we, we go with the text. And the way we preach is we preach through a whole book of the Bible. We go from Old Testament to New Testament. So this is where we are in the text. I'm not saying we don't just talk about giving, okay, guys? Just don't worry about that. But... I love, out of nowhere, Paul is talking, and he's, he's sharing his heart with the Corinthian people, his, his church in Corinth, and he's, his main topic, his letter is really focused on reconciliation. He said, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting their sins against them. And he says that we are now agents of reconciliation. He calls us ambassadors. So his whole message, his whole point is about reconciliation. But then all of a sudden comes this little aside about funds that are being raised. And you think, does this fit? Does it match? And actually, this is what Paul does. It does match. See, but while 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is talking about money, it's doing so in the context of Paul's effort to reconcile Jewish and non-Jewish background believers. Paul's passion, as was Jesus' passion, was for unity in the church. Guys, I want you to understand this. Racial tension and racial conflict and other issues related to race and racism are not just issues that we face today in our society and our culture. While we see it way too often in our, our day in our culture, it's an issue that has haunted the church since its earliest days. It's the handiwork of Satan, and it sadly traps many a Christian. And so Paul decided to take a special collection from the newly formed Gentile churches, and he planned to take this offering to Jerusalem and present it to the Jewish leaders to address the poverty and hunger amongst the Jewish Christians. Paul was a two birds with one stone kind of guy. The offering was practical, but highly symbolic and intended to heal. See, think about it. the Jewish Christians who for the longest time think those Gentiles don't count or they don't deserve or they shouldn't hear the gospel. They're now being financially supported, loved, and cared for by who? The Gentile Christians. How powerful is that? What a message that conveys. What a, what a word of reconciliation. What a practical expression of reconciliation. The Corinthian church was one of the strongest of the newly formed churches, and they promised to participate in the offering, but had kind of lagged behind in their giving after the beginning of the year, after their initial enthusiasm. So Paul is actually addressing and challenging them and reminding them of the importance of their gift, this gift that brought unity to the body and helped build the understanding that Jew and Gentile are one. This was a very important gift for Paul. It wasn't just helping hungry people, which was important enough. But for Paul, it was also the message of reconciliation. It was a tangible way for the Jews and Gentiles to come together and say, what's more important than our Jew and being a Jew or being a Gentile is that we're Christians and we love each other and support each other. So this gift was so important to Paul. Yet Paul in chapter 8 verse 8 says this, I am not commanding you. I am not commanding you. And this is an important gift to Paul. He's an apostle. He's an apostle. He's demanded other things, but he's not demanding this. Now, this is very significant. I want to reflect on that for a second and ask what that means. He does not say as an apostle, you must do this. Over and over and over again in various ways, he says, I want you to do this. I'm not ordering you to do this. In 811, he says, I want to see eager willingness. In 970, he says, I don't want you to do it with reluctance or compulsion. I want you to want this. I'm not going to tell you to do it. I want you to do it if you really want to. Guys, you see the importance of what's happening here. I really got a lot of this from Tim Keller. So Tim Keller is really, his thoughts on this topic helped me open my eyes to see this in a different way. And so really a lot of this sermon, really most of this message was formed what my man Timmy K had to say about this. I can say that about Timmy, me and him are tight. It's not true. But... But Tim Keller says, let's compare this to some other areas of Christian ethics. Generous giving has always been a standard for the people of God, all through the Bible. 
but so has other things. Other things have been a standard of like coming together on worship on, for one day of the week and resting. It's been a standard for the people of God. Other examples like sexual purity have been standards that how the people of God set them apart from the other nations around them. But can you imagine Paul writing to a group of people saying, I'm not going to command you to be sexually faithful to your spouse because I only want you to be faithful to your spouse if you really want to. Of course, he'd never say that. But why is he saying that with giving here? And what Tim Keller says is that what this reveals is unlike some other areas, unlike some other sins like impurity or adultery, greed and materialism have no absolute certain external behavioral reference. In other words, there's no kind of behavior that says you crossed the line into sin and greed and materialism. There's no level of gift or money or spending that says, oh, now you're in it, and then now you're not. It's hard to see. It's hard to see if you're being generous or if you're being greedy. It's hard to know. There's no line that says, oh, you're over this, you're greedy, you're under this, you're generous, you're under this, you're greedy, and you're under this, you're generous. There's no place like that. So T. Kimmel goes on to say that over the years as a pastor, people have come to him many, many times and said, Pastor, I have a problem with lust. But he says never, ever has anyone come to him and said, Pastor, I have a problem with greed. It's never happened, he says. And yet the Bible warns, warns against greed at least 10 to 20 times more than it does against lust. 10 to 20 times more. Now, what does that mean? It means greed must be a big danger, but most of us are not often aware of it. It means that greed is dangerous, but most of us don't think we fall onto that danger. The reason is because there's no behavioral reference. Paul's over and over again saying greed versus generosity is a matter of your heart. It's a matter of what's going on in here. It's a matter of your attitude. It's not the matter of the gift. A widow's tiny gift can be an act of radical generosity, but a huge gift might be just a heart's effort to hide its own greed from itself. We learned that lesson elsewhere, right? Some say actually there is a standard, a reference point, right? Some might say, well, what about the tithe, right? Isn't that the standard? Isn't that the reference point? Isn't it true historically that the scripture and Dave Ramsey had said the people of God must tithe, give 10%, right? Isn't that what, that's what you need to do. As long as you do that, you're golden, right? And the answer is in Luke 12, the same place I mentioned earlier, Jesus criticizes the Pharisees for tithing because they were so well off they didn't even feel the tithe. They used it as a way to boast about their standing. There's no way you can look at a standard. There's no reference. Adultery, they can find, you can find references for this, but there's a behavior. You know what you're doing, but with greed, it's hard to see. It's a matter of the heart, but Jesus says in Luke 12, beware of all forms of greed. He's saying watch out for all the different forms of greed can, can take. And the implication of that is that it's hard to see. We have to be aware of all the different forms because we don't know what form it's taking in our own heart. Commentators have noticed something in these verses here. 39 verses, 8 and 9, Paul's talking, it's kind of this break from his treatise on reconciliation and apostleship, and he's talking all of a sudden about stewardship and about money, but he actually never uses the word money, right? Two chapters, we all know what he's talking about. It's about stewardship, it's about generosity, it's about money, but he actually never uses the word money. Now, it's hard to do that, to talk about something without actually ever using the word what you're talking about, right? 
It's hard to talk about the subject of sharks without ever saying shark. I said shark just because Hudson's obsessed with sharks. It's the first thing that popped in my head. It's hard to do. It had to be deliberate. So what's he saying? He's saying it's not ever about money itself. It's not about the amount of money. It's always about the heart. Paul's definition of a generous heart is a frightening thing because the only way you really know whether you're generous or greedy, the only way that you're greedy or materialistic is, or not is about how much, it's not about how much you're giving, but it's about the emotions, the heart behind your giving and not giving. And that's a hard thing because certain people, a lot of us just want to be told, if I do this, then am I good? Right? Most of us just want to check off the box. Most of us want to know, am I on this side or am I on this side? And I want to be on the right side. Am I on the right team? Am I in the right place? God, am I doing good enough? And we want to know. But greed is not one of those things. It's not one of those things well, that you can easily define and say you're doing good enough. Because our hearts are what's being measured here. What's going on inside of us. For example, look at verse 8. It says, I'm commanding you. But I want to test the sincerity. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. The others here are the Macedonian churches that Paul talks about in the first four, first four verses. These were the churches that existed in, in poverty, in much impoverished state than the church in Corinth. But they've already given from their poverty. And Paul uses that example. He says, I want to test the sincerity of your love. Notice he doesn't say the sincerity of what your view of money. He says the sincerity of your love. And sincerity means trueness, not the lavish, but the trueness, the reality, the existence of your love. So what he's saying is the Macedonians are an example of a sincere, true love. When he says, look at these Macedonians who've done this, who've given out of their poverty, he's not saying, look how super spiritual, how awesome they are. He's saying, that's the normal behavior of sincere, true love. It's not beyond normal, it's normal. It just means that they have grace of God in their lives. In other words, a sincere love is shown in impoverished giving. So what's the definition of a generous heart? It says in verse 8, the definition of a generous heart is someone who has such a joyous, assertive, proactive desire to seek out ways to give that you do it, and you do it, and you do it. A generous heart is one that joyously, proactively, aggressively looks for ways to give your resources, your money, and you're not a draw-the-line 2%, 5%, 3%, 1%, 10%, 50%, whatever percent it is. It's a heart that says, I love God and I trust him and I want to be used for his purposes. So there's a problem. It's invisible to us. And real generosity, normal generosity, according to Paul, is something that's really, really hard and out of our experience. So what do we do about this problem? The Bible is clear. He warns us against greed 10 to 20 times more than he warns us against lust. He warns us that the root of all money is the love, root of all evil is the love of money. There is this, this sincere, real problem. And I'm just going to go even further to say, not only did the Bible say, but we can look at our culture right now. Can we not see that there is a sincere, real problem? We are some of the greediest people in the greediest nation in the greediest time in, in, of the world. Are we not? So what do we do? How do we fight it? And guys, my, can I tell you this, by the way? When I say greed, I'm not talking about Scrooge here. 
And in my mind, I think about Scrooge McDuck. I don't know why I think of McDuck. I think of DuckTales. I think of swimming through gold coins, you know. I'm not accusing any one of you guys of swimming through gold coins, okay? What I am saying, when I say greed, I'm not talking about you guys like, ooh, look how much money I have, yes. No, I'm saying most of you guys, the greed comes, how it shows itself in most of our lives is I don't ever have enough. I'm stressed. I don't know what to do. Will I have tomorrow? Will I be taken care of? My anxiety, my fear rules my life. That doesn't look like greed. You're like, whoa, Lawrence, that's not greed. Not having enough, not ever feeling like you have enough is greed. Does that make sense? Now, can I just say, hear me, this is something that I want to speak. This is not a me saying, greedy people. This is me saying, Lawrence, why do you still feel that you don't have enough? Lawrence, why is it that I can look out and see sparrows and I can see lilies? And I can be reminded of how well taken care of and how well dressed they are. And I can still forget and I can still feel the need to hoard and to not give. Our hearts are prone to greed. So what do we do about it? What can be done about it? Now I'm going to give you two things that you can do. Two ways to battle greed. You ready? Number one, by having hope in our future. And two, by looking to Jesus. By having hope in our future, and two, by looking to Jesus. And really this first answer, by hoping hope in our future, this is the ultimate answer, and the rest just kind of flows from it. If you look at chapter 9, the second part of the passage says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. This is a great metaphor, this is looking at your money as a seed. And we all know the more seeds you put in the field, the more harvest will come up, Right? So this is kind of the way, so he's saying the more you're able to give, the more charitable, the more you'll be able to give your money away, the greater the harvest, right? What's the harvest? That's the question. What is the harvest? The more, the idea of a seed is the more you put down, the more it's going to grow. The idea here is the more money you give away, the more it's going to reap a harvest. The question is, what's the harvest? Is it the more money you give away, the more money you're going to get, so I'm going to be rich? Is that what it's saying? It is saying the more money I give away, the more blessings I'm going to get. So if I give more money away, then everything good is going to happen in my life. Right? That's, is that what it's saying? No. That's not what it's saying. What's the harvest? If you notice the verse, it says, and God's able to make all grace abound to you so that all things, having all you need. He doesn't say he's going to give you everything you want. He says your needs will be met. The harvest is not that. The harvest is found in verse 10. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Harvest of your righteousness. What does that mean? I mean, sounds cool, but it doesn't sound as good as getting money back. I mean, what does that mean? I get 5% cash back on my credit card. What does harvest of my righteousness actually mean? Right? Paul is quoting Psalm 112 here. Great psalm. You should read it sometime. He quotes the place where it's talking about a man by whom it says, He scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. If you can go back to Psalm 112, you see what righteousness is. It's, it's, it's this idea of the man who's being described as the man who's using his money to kind of reweave what's wrong in creation, to fix what is broken around him. What this man is doing, he's putting money into the poor to lift them up. 
He's putting money into the hungry so they don't die. Over and over again throughout the Psalm 112, it talks about doing justice, compassion, giving freely. And finally, he says he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now let's talk about the way in which he uses his money, his power. He's using his money, his power to reweave creation instead of just spending it on himself. He's using it for a cause. Then he says his righteousness endures forever. Now when you read that, you might think, that's a good rhetorical finish. It's a, it's a good idea. But what does that really mean? He's going to die, so how does his righteousness endure forever? 2 Peter 3.13 says this, But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. A new heavens and a new earth filled with this kind of righteousness. If you read Psalm 112 and you see what he's doing and what righteousness means there, then you read 2 Peter 3.13 that promises that the future world is a world filled with righteousness and that doesn't mean just a bunch of people going to church. It means a world in which everything broken has become whole. It means everything unraveled has become rewoven and knit together. Everything sad has become untrue. In the new heavens and new earth, God and human beings are fully intimate together in the knowledge of one another. There is no more spiritual alienation or rebellion, race, racism, uh, Gender issues, everything, nations' issues will all be knit together. They'll be rewoven. There won't be any more war. There'll be no more poverty. Psychologically, you, who you'd most long to be and who you actually are are finally knit together. You won't be unhappy anymore. You won't feel lost anymore. No sickness, no disease, no death. New heavens, new earth. That's the future. That's the righteousness that endures forever. And you're asking yourself, how, wait a minute, that's the harvest of righteousness. How does money can give us that now? How does our money giving away produce a harvest of righteousness? It's because what Paul is saying you and I must do with our money is what Jesus did with his miracles. You've heard me say over and over again at Waypoint. What did Jesus do with his miracles? Why did he perform the miracles he performed? Right? You said this, that some people will say Jesus performed miracles just to show his power. To show that this is who he is, to show how it's his divinity. And I say, well, if that was the case, and if I was Jesus, if I wanted to show my power and divinity, I wouldn't be healing the sick and, you know, bringing sight to the blind. I'd be having dragons flying up out of nowhere, huge dragons, you know, with unicorns flying out of their mouth and swords and, I don't know, fire. I don't know what I would do, but I'd figure fireworks, fingertips, and it'd be crazy. I'd have a dragon play fetch with a tree. I'd have fireworks come out, and, and, and then you'd be like, that guy's divine. But that's not what Jesus did. His miracles were he healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He gave oil to the poor. He cleansed the leper and brought back the outcast. He gave sight to the blind. Why? Aren't there better ways to display who he is? I mean, flying hippos, shooting across the sky, spelling out Jesus the Messiah in the sky. <laughs> Wouldn't that be better? Because he wasn't here to tell us just who he is. He was here to tell us what he came to do. To give the story of his life, his purpose, his mission. And what was that story? What was his purpose? He was taking us somewhere. To the new heavens and the new earth where, where righteousness dwells. He had to come to all the signs of his miracles are signs of that hope. 
all the signs of his miracles is the work that he's doing of reweaving, recreating, to say all that was broken, I'm the redeemer, and I will fix. And all his miracles point to that. And he says, hey, look at that. See what I did. I brought sight to the blind. I brought hope to the outcast. I fixed what was wrong in creation. And that's where we're going. That's what's happening. And so when Jesus did miracles like that, they showed he is no, he's no happier with the world than the way that, that you and I are. His miracles point back to the garden even, to the way God created the world to be. No one hungry, no one blind, no one oppressed, no one dead. But more than that, his miracles point forward. His miracles are a sign of the coming kingdom, our future hope, where there will be no one poor, no one hungry, no one oppressed, and no one dead. Now, if you believe that to be true, if you believe that to be coming, then when you use your money, you put yourself into Jesus' story. When you give generously, when you use your money to do ministry, you're knitting the world back together. When you put your money back into the poor, you're producing a harvest. You're planting the seed that produces the harvest of righteousness. You're knitting the social fabric back together. You're doing the work that Jesus did. You are recreating. It's smaller than the way Jesus did it. It's less dramatic than the way Jesus did it. But we do it because of what he did. And suddenly, all of a sudden, your giving and your money isn't just a way to fill the time. Suddenly, your money isn't just a way to distract yourself from the harshness of this world. Suddenly, your money isn't just existence to maybe that make yourself feel important or better about yourself because you don't need that because you know the future that's coming. You know the hope that's happening. You know that you don't need to distract yourself from the hardships of the world because one day, all will be made right. So now when you give, you say, I'm a part of what you're doing. So when you give, you can say that I'm working with you to reweave what was broken. Thank you, God, that I get to be a part of that. You don't have to distract yourself anymore with empty sensations of not going anywhere. Now your money makes you a part of Jesus' story. It's a sign of the coming kingdom. Isn't that amazing? Guys, as I, as, as Tim Keller is the one really, as he formulated these thoughts for me, I remember it just capturing my heart. Because the work of Jesus is something that I long to be a part of. I do. I want to do what Jesus did. And sometimes I think, well, sometimes a lot of you might think, oh, you better be a pastor to do it, right? Or you got to be a missionary to do it, right? For me to really do the work of Jesus, do the same thing Jesus did, that I better be those things. That is so not true. Being a pastor, those are just vocations. The mission and calling of every one of our lives, every one of you, is to be a part of the kingdom advancing, reworking of creation mission that Jesus gave you. And we all get to do it. We all get to do it. Do you guys see how beautiful that is? Do you guys see that your life and your job, sometimes when you go, it's not nothing. It's not meaningless. It's not worthless. That there's purpose behind it. And some of you guys work jobs, oh, my job is tough, and I don't see any meaning behind it. I do the work, and I just get yelled at my boss, and it's hard. But there is power when you use what gifts God's given you, and then you give it away. It's amazing. 
So the first way we combat greed, materialism, is we see the future hope that is ours. Number two, second way is you look at Jesus. You look at Jesus. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that was that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul is saying, look what happened to Jesus, just look to him. The last verse of 9.15, the last verse of this whole passage, Paul suddenly cries out, out of nowhere, he just cries out and says, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. That's how he closes his section, 9.15. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. His indescribable gift, Jesus, the ultimate gift. Jesus is the ultimate treasure. And here's why he's ultimate. I want you guys to get this. Every other treasure you have to purchase, right? Anything you have in life, that's a treasure. You have to earn, you have to purchase, you have to fight for. You just have to, you have to work to get. Jesus is the only treasure that purchased you. Jesus is the only treasure that fought for you. When he was in the garden saying, Father, just, I don't want to go through this. If there's any way to take this away from me, will you take it away? But for their sake, I'll do it. What Jesus is saying is, I treasure them. They're so valuable to me that I will spend my life for them. I'll do whatever it takes for them. Jesus is the ultimate treasure, and Jesus treasures you in the most ultimate way. And Paul is simply saying, if you know that, you are going to a completely, completely different way of approaching your money then. Your money will no longer be your hope. It will just be a sign of your hope. Your money no longer will be your hope. It won't be the thing that makes you feel secure in this world. See, here's the deal. If you're afraid to give away your money, it's because it's your hope. If you're afraid to give away your money, it's because it's your significance. If you see what Jesus has done for you, then he has secured your significance. He has secured your security. If that's the case, then no longer is money your hope. Your money then can become a sign of your hope, of the new heavens and the new earth. Guys, I want you to hear this. So many of us, us, find our identity and what status we have. So many of us find comfort and security in that there's enough money in the bank account. So many of us find our esteem. So many of us find purpose or way to fill up our time by the money we have. But all along, the ultimate treasure is saying, look to me and find your security, find your esteem, find your purpose in me. My people, money will never secure you. Money will never provide what you're truly longing for. Only when you look at Jesus and see the love he has for you. When you look at Jesus and see that you are known and you are loved and you have purpose. Only when you trust in Jesus will you know that you can be more loved than you can ever imagine. More taken care of than ever before conceived and more secure than anything else. Then, then will money be given and used for something else. God says to us, look at what happened when my son made himself poor. And look at what's going on in your life. Look at what happened when Jesus, when he sowed his power. 
He let go of his wealth. He impoverished himself. But look at the harvest of righteousness. Look at it. Look at it in your own life. When he made himself poor and he gave it all away. Look at the harvest. You. If for those of you who know Jesus today, you. Look at the harvest that he produced. He changed you. He's called you. He's loved you. And you can be known. You can be loved. And you're called a whole different trajectory. You're a whole different track. You're now known and you're loved. You're a child of God. Look at that harvest. He's reworking creation. He started in you. And if that's what happens, look what happened to him. Look what's happened to me. If that's what Jesus did when he sowed his power, when he sowed his money and his wealth, go and do likewise. And look at the harvest. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus as we look to him and see God, his love, see his example of someone who gave, lowered himself, sowed his treasure so that he could be our ultimate treasure, our reward. And we see what righteousness comes from that. God, may we combat greed. May we see the future hope that is ours in the work of recreation. And we look to Jesus. God, we turn to you. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, it's at this time that we're going to come to the Lord's table. Not just yet. Uh, but earlier when we prayed, we had a time of confession together that James led us through. And we also want to have a time where we accept God's forgiveness. We confess our sin to him, but we also trust that he's forgiven us if we're in Christ. We see in 1 John 1.8 says if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So church, we, we can come to this table trusting we are forgiven people because we trust in the one who gave himself for us. So primarily we come in communion for two things. One, to remember Jesus' death. We were actually commanded in scripture, it says, to remember his death. I don't know about you, but it is easy for me to think about when I think about Jesus, more of kind of his divine side, right? Because he's fully God and fully man. But this table is a, for us, a bi-weekly reminder. He was also a man. He felt the cat of nine tails. He felt nails driven through his hands. He felt the humiliation and the pain of being hung on a cross. And he did that, the scriptures say, for us, because sin needed to be paid for. A sacrifice had to be given, and Jesus himself offers that. We're going to give you two things that represent that. Of When we hand you a cracker, it represents his body, which was given for you, which was broken for you. We're going to have a cup of juice, which represents his blood. It's poured out for you. But we don't just remember, we also anticipate that one day we're going to be with him in glory. Revelation says that there's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb, this wedding banquet for those who are the bride of Christ, which is his church, those who have trusted in Jesus alone for their forgiveness and salvation. One day we're headed there, best food and drink you could ever imagine, dining together with God's people. But if you're anything like me, life is busy, right? You've got kids running around, you're trying to 
be faithful at your work. You're thinking, oh, the holidays are coming up. Who's making the casserole this year? Where is it? All this stuff. And we need reminders in our life <laughs> to be reminded there's something bigger. We're going to be with the Lord one day. James 4.14 says, what is your life? It's a mist that appears for a little time and vanishes. So even this table is a good reminder for us every other week to go. Our life's a mist. One day we're going to be with him, feasting with the bride of Christ. So this time I'll call our servers forward if you are serving. And practically how this is going to work is uh, there's going to be four stations all throughout the center of the church here. Two people at each station. One person will hand you a cracker, so you don't need to take the cracker yourself. It will be handed to you. And then someone will have a cup of, again, it's grape juice. Uh, and you can dip the cracker into the grape juice. And then from there, you can either go ahead and eat the cracker right there if you would like, or you can go back to your seat, spend some time praying. There's no right way to do this. This is just, again, a time for us to remember. And I'll read from the Gospels um, when Jesus himself instituted the first communion, the Lord's Supper, what he said. And I'll invite you guys forward. So this is from Luke's Gospel. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So at this time, church, I'll invite you guys. You can come through the center of the aisles and go out the opposite way. But at this time, I invite you to come forward and accept this gift of grace that God gives us.